0: P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart-size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.
2: Earlier today, we found out that sales of previously owned U.S. homes climbed for the fifth time in six months to the highest level since 2007. At the same time, we're seeing 30-year mortgage rates starting to rise and some weakness emerging in places like Miami and New York City. So what's ahead for the home market? I want to bring in Logan Motoshami, Senior Loan Officer at AMC Lending Group, uh, to get up some broader perspective, Logan, when you look forward, at what point will these higher mortgage rates start to impede the progress in the housing market?
3: So as of this year, we've seen higher rates maybe uh, slow down the rate of growth. But as of now, nothing has has changed the demand curve. And I think what, what people miss sometimes is that in 2015, the 10-year Yields sold off just basically the same amount. And last year, existing home sales hit a cycle high with inventory uh, at cycle lows. And today's report, we just hit another cycle high with inventory low as demand is still rising. But overall, demand is still very soft because our demographics still in this country are more for renting than it is for home buying.
0: Can you speak a little bit about today's uh, Jan- uh, report about January existing home sales? They were up uh, about three, three and a half percent. The selling rate is stronger than the consensus uh, estimates. They are looking for five point five five million. But I thought even even more interesting is this comparison, where single family sales were up two and a half percent, condos up eight uh, percent, and um, I'm wondering whether you could speak to those uh, those numbers. Well-
3: Here's here's the thing. It, uh, existing home sales. The if you if you listen to housing people, they tell you that existing home sales can't grow because inventory is too low. But that's not correct. The great yeah. Back. But the biggest buyer of homes in America today are millennials. So first time home buyers are growing, and naturally condos would be one avenue that they would be buying. Especially single women. Single women uh, buy homes uh, twice the uh, rate of single men. So if we get more and more first-time home buyers, you should see more and more uh, first-time home uh, sales being predicated to either the condo or the smaller single-family residence
2: home. You said that we've seen, uh, you, you mentioned the cycle highs in home sales, and you see prices generally rising, uh, at least on average, at least when you look at the U.S., across the board. But there are some specific signs of weakness. We've been looking at, for example, the rental market uh, for condos in New York City, uh, Miami, also Toronto. There's a lot of concern that prices are getting ahead of themselves. Do you think that those fears, those specific kind of uh, location-specific fears, are unfounded? Or do you think that these could be uh, sore spots in, in the year ahead?
3: I, I, I would tell you that the, the Real home prices are nowhere close to where they were. Once you adjust home prices to inflation, we're nowhere close to to the housing bubble peak. So if you take real home prices with real wages growing and interest rates this low, this is a factor why home buying is still continuing to go. I think people make the mistake of using nominal home prices and real wages when they should be looking at real wages and real home prices. And this is why national home sales can still grow, even though nominal prices are still at high. Now, we do have certain spots. The luxury market in New York in the, the home building boom in terms of multifamily growth has cooled down. It's, it's actually negative in 2016. So that rate of growth has cooled down. We're gonna have more supply come on the market. The demographics for renting in a few years is gonna to turn to home buying. So there's gonna be a natural dislocation of supply and demand coming in soon. But I don't see a major concern because, for example, the home buyers we have now are the best in the cycle, the best I've ever seen, and they can afford to buy homes. But housing inflation is a real issue, and it impacts the marginal home buyer who's been a renter. He doesn't have the income or liquid assets to purchase at home. And that's been the case for 20 years now. Uh, the housing bubble facilitated some of that demand with exotic debt structures. We don't have that anymore. So this is one of the reasons why we don't see low FICO score Americans buy homes anymore, which I don't think is ever going to come back because they don't have the capacity to buy homes. So the housing inflation story is real, but it's not as bad as, as the nominal headlines show.
0: Logan, I'm wondering if there's an element that we may be missing having to do with people who are self-employed because you want to claim, right, as little income as possible if you're self-employed. But then that bumps up against the actual very strict guidelines when it comes to filling out the application uh, for a mortgage. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that changing demographic in terms of the workplace and how that plays out in the home market. Well,
3: self-employed Americans, I believe, are less than 15 million um so the the ones that are really doing good you know right now you really only need a one-year tax return to show the income um but in general yes the stated income loan was designed to allow self-employed people to buy homes that had the cash flow but show as little as possible on their on their tax return so you know you can make a valid case that some home buyers could be buying homes, but they just don't want to pay the taxes. But then again, I just I don't think in scale that's big enough to really move the markets because some of the really successful self-employed people still, have, still can show enough income to buy homes. And being a lender here in Southern California for 30 years, we've had many, many, many of our clients are self-employed people. So that is a factor into it. But I think it's very hard pressed to ever bring back stated income loans under the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's guidelines right. of showing income. So,
2: Logan, uh, there was a story on the Bloomberg this morning talking about why Trump's immigration crackdown could uh, cause a dent in U.S. home prices. Do you believe that?
3: No, because we're, that would—it's just not enough scale. Uh, housing is a home prices are a function of inventory. Inventory in the last twenty years have only been above six months from 2006 to 2011. That was the housing bubble, uh, pent-up, fake demand, and then the the burst happened. Outside of that, you know, it's very hard for us as a country to get over six months' inventory because I think it's harder to move up. So in scale, foreign buyers out of 6 million homes are under 300,000. In certain cities where you have educated foreigners coming in and working, I just don't think there's enough of them. To, to touch the entire general housing market in America.
0: I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Logan mataharmi is the Senior Loan Officer at AMC Lending Group. It is expensive out there. Valuations of industrial companies are so high that it may be thwarting any merger or acquisition strategy. Here to tell us more is Joel Levington. He is our senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us as always, Joel. Tell us a little bit about the uh, new report, Spin the Wheel, Make a Deal, Prices High in Cap Goods. I'm just telling you, that does not rhyme, but I guess credit (laughs) analysts, you don't have to rhyme at all. But go ahead. Tell us, uh, spin the wheel, make a deal.
4: Well, you should have gone, with Strike a Pose, Uh, buybacks are
0: in vogue. Very good. (laughs) All right. You get that gold full mark star. Um, So what's the situation now? And what kind of companies are we talking about? GE, Danaher, Honeywell, Caterpillar, and so on?
4: Yes, we're talking about your your manufacturing sector, uh, in part because of what's happened with with Donald Trump uh, becoming president. There has been a huge run. Uh, stock prices in the industrial sector, uh, to the point where multiples for acquisitions are at the highest that uh, that we can find on the terminal, uh, about 13.7 times. And the basic math tells you that, uh, at least from the credit perspective, it's dilutive uh, to uh, leverage. Uh, leverage averages about two times. So if you're buying at 13.7 uh, with 70% debt financing, which is what the averages are, Uh, it's weaker for credit to go that route than to go the share purchase route.
2: All right, Joel, I am looking at you in a whole new light now. You look like a different person. You're I always knew of you as a credit analyst, trying to you know keep companies true to their uh, corporate corporate credit structure. And yet here you are advocating for companies to buy back their shares. How does this work? Because aren't credit guys against this? Isn't that sort of a, uh, a diluting of potential profits to pay back uh, their debt? I mean, isn't this a problem? This has been going on a long time?
4: right. Well, knowing how you looked at me before, i'm I'm pleased that you're looking at me in a different light right now.. <laughs> <laughs> But what, well, I, then. <laughs> but, but what I would say is that um, it really is a case of what's less worse. With relatively cheap financing still out there, there are very, very few companies in the industrial sector that are looking to lower leverage. So it becomes what's a game of what is less punitive, the share purchase the share purchase route or the acquisition route. And it tends to be the share purchase route would make more sense or the less worse case for bondholders. Can we just go through a little of the detail? Because I want to see that, okay, you're talking about the valuation
0: of a company. So let's just just do an imaginary scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Where you've got maybe uh, Honeywell or GE, they want to go out and buy a company and the valuation is, as you say, 13.7. Could we just say 14? So 14 times. And um, then they're deciding, well, maybe we shouldn't buy the company. Maybe we should give this money back to shareholders in the form of an increased dividend or buy back shares. Right. Buying a company They've got to do some analysis that says that the internal rate of return for doing such is going to be better than whatever the alternative is, correct?
4: Uh, You're absolutely right, Pim. And there are are a few cases. uh, An example might be Emerson Electric's purchase of Pentair's valves and control business where they've identified 10% of sales as cost saves. So that's a very unique case in our, in our area, but I do think that valves and control area is a, is, a, is a place where you could see a lot more consolidation happened. It's also one where uh, Tryon had pushed Pentair to look to as, a, as being a consolidator before they wound up selling out.
0: That was uh, Nelson Peltz's uh, uh, Tryon. Now, it, okay, but so just let's take this one, one step further. What is connected to the compensation of chief executives at major corporations?
4: Well, you know, that's a very case-by-case I was going to story, venture to say the stock price. The stock price is always one. And, and e- if you buy back
0: shares, what happens typically to the stock price?
4: Uh, well, that, <laughs> that isn't necessarily uh, going to raise the stock price. But what I would say is that a lot are compensated on EPS growth. And you can get more bang for your buck as a CFO or CEO repurchasing your shares to increase your EPS as opposed to doing the buybacks, excuse me, as opposed to doing acquisitions because acquisition multiples are so high. Makes the EPS look good. Exactly.
2: As we talk, I'm thinking about those private equity companies, Apollo, Blackstone, Carlyle. They've been collecting, amassing nearly a trillion dollars of dry powder on their books, of of money that they're looking to spend uh, on something, on companies ostensibly. Uh, does this mean that it's going to be very challenging for them to spend this? I mean, this sort of raises a question of of how effectively they can deploy that.
4: Uh, it certainly does, and it certainly uh, dictates what sectors that they could participate in. In industrials, where you're looking at uh, GDP growth plus or minus a percentage for the, your typical business, If you're leveraged, uh, if you're buying something at 14 times, uh, if you're doing a recap of a company, maybe you can leverage it six or seven times, which means that your equity component is going to be another seven or eight times. And the basic math says, like, that's not really going to work for good returns. And so a sector like mine, where the growth is low, tells you that that's not a place that they can go. Maybe something like tech or healthcare, where the growth rates are higher, they would be able to get a better return over time.
2: So you don't expect any private equity involvement in the industrial space for a while?
4: Well, you can never say never, but if you're trying to make the math work, it would be very hard to do it at these levels. Thanks very
0: much for telling us all about this. Joel Levington, he is our senior credit analyst. Bloomberg Intelligence really gives you a different perspective on what's going on, doesn't it?
2: Well, it also makes me understand a little bit better why there have been so many share buybacks. Even uh, companies that do raise uh, debt to lock in low interest rates for a longer period of time and then use that to buy back shares. You know, the original, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is, oh, this is sort of uh, making a bad situation for the credit investors, but perhaps this is the lesser of a number of evils. Uh, Very interesting. Thank you so much, Joel. We'll be keeping track of that.
0: p l is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom Custom shirts made smarter. So, what's cooking across America at McDonald's? Well, it might be a chocolatey mint. It may be some increases or in eggs. or eggs. Indeed, I was going to go to the drinks thing because the big thing about McDonald's, which just reported its results, uh, is uh, that it is going to uh, promote drinks by lowering the cost. And here to tell us more is Leslie Patton, our consumer reporter for Bloomberg News, here to tell us all about Mickey D's. Uh, All right, so Leslie, tell us about uh, what the company's doing, why they're doing it, and do you think it's going to work?
1: So McDonald's starting in April, they're going to be promoting dollar sodas, any size, and then $2 small McCafe drinks um, across the U.S. This is the first time They've done this on a national basis. They've done it here and there regionally, so you may have seen it at your local McDonald's, especially the dollar sodas, I think is a pretty popular thing. But I think they're just trying to get more people in the door, maybe during some of those off hours, like in the afternoon when you need a coffee pick-me-up. Um, you can get one for only 2 bucks at McDonald's. And then also, it may be a sign that some of the, the food deflation that we've seen in the past couple years may be starting to wear off a little bit, especially kind of in the back half of this year. So McDonald's is going to promote drinks instead of food to kind of help the bottom line a little bit.
2: Okay, so that's interesting that you say that, because when I read this, I thought to myself, you know, everyone's talking about inflation and the reflationary trade, and then you hear about McDonald's cutting their prices. And that kind of speaks to an opposite narrative. But you're saying it fits in. It just sort of shows how they're trying to gain an edge in a place where they'll be less affected by inflation. Is that
1: correct? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a little nuanced because they're doing drinks instead of food this time. Because drinks are super high margin for restaurants. They're one of the highest margin things on the menu, much higher than food. So it makes sense that they would be promoting the the beverages in a time when maybe we're starting to see food inflation tick up a little bit.
2: So does the fact that McDonald's is taking this step mean that the boost that they got from introducing all-day breakfast is wearing off?
1: You know, I think we saw that a little bit when they reported uh, fourth quarter earnings. That was a little bit of a concern, a little bit of slowdown in the U.S. comp sales. So perhaps some of that hype around all-day breakfast is wearing off, and they're going to have to find Something a little bit new, something something exciting to keep customers coming in.
0: I'm wondering if you could describe for us the state of the strategic plan uh, as it relates to the franchises and also the operations in China.
1: Um, sure. So, so for the franchises um, here in the U.S., I know McDonald's and globally, McDonald's has been selling off. Their company-owned stores moving to that asset-light model is what they like to call it in the industry. So that's something we're seeing more and more of. And McDonald's is continuing on that path. Other restaurants are doing the same thing. So really, no surprise there. Um, nothing super new. I don't think we've heard too much about that lately. And then the same with China and some of its other Asian businesses selling off the rights to to own and manage those stores is something they've been working on for a while now too. So how much
2: can we glean about the broader restaurant industry or sort of lower cost restaurant industry from McDonald's results? We've been hearing about the sort of restaurant recession and uh, seen some of the bad results that have come out out of places like Chipotle uh, and others. Does McDonald's serve as a sort of harbinger of, of things to come for others or is it really an
1: idiosyncratic story? You know, it's a it's a little hard to say. I think in general, you could take McDonald's and say, yes, this applies to the rest of the industry. The rest of the industry is seeing what McDonald's is seeing in terms of maybe food inflation is going to start um, picking back up, or we're going to see some food inflation in the back half of this year. But at the same time, McDonald's is very much its own beast. It's um, you know, it, it's known for fast food, convenience, value, that sort of thing. So if we if we try to take that to like a Panera or a Chipotle or the casual dining industry, it may not necessarily translate exactly um, as to what's going on at this at this fast food company.
0: Leslie, who they want, who do they really want to take uh, take some share from? I mean, for example, when you cut the cost of some of these sugary drinks, uh, particularly coffee based, uh, that means that Starbucks might be losing some sales. Or am I wrong? You know,
1: it's possible. I think. Probably there's a little bit of customer overlap there. But for the most part, I think McDonald's and Starbucks probably have some different customers. Maybe they could steal a little share from Dunkin' Donuts. That's maybe who they have a little more overlap with in terms of the, the coffees and beverages, that sort of thing. Um, but really, I mean, McDonald's and, and the rest of the industry, they're just happy to take share from whoever they can, from, from the mom-and-pop coffee shop, from the regional player, too, from, from anyone.
2: Leslie Patton, thank you so much. Really a a fascinating look at sort of how some of the uh, restaurant companies are dealing with inflation in some areas, but perhaps not others. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts with proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service. Ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.